we're going to continue our series on the power of our thoughts. And the series has to do with our inner life. And so I thought this PowerPoint slide is very appropriate because I think of the verse in Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. And out of it flows our thoughts and our emotions and our will. When we met in October, I spoke on what God thinks about us. And tonight's message is what we think about God. And if I were to ask 10 people what they think about God, I would probably get 10 different answers based upon how they view God in their circumstances. Now, some may say God is love or God is ever-present, all-knowing. For me, rich in grace, mighty to save, faithful and true. And yet others may say, God is judging, vindictive, angry, ashamed of me, fed up, demanding, distant. So those two views of God I'm going to share with you tonight and show you how God answers all of this with his truth. It's interesting because A.W. Tozer wrote the classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, one of my favorite books. And he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's quite a statement, isn't it? And C.S. Lewis echoed that by saying, Indeed, how we think of God is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. And that is why the second lesson we were in Psalm 139, to see what God thinks about us. And from that lesson we saw that God thinks the world of us. God is always thinking about us. He's thinking about us all throughout the day and all throughout the night, even when we're sleeping. And his thoughts always come wrapped in his love for us. So God desires a relationship with us, and he wants our view of him to be accurate and true. For how we perceive God makes all the difference in how we interact with him. It shapes our thinking, it shapes our emotions, it shapes the way we respond to people and circumstances. So what we believe about God in the deep recesses of our mind shapes the whole course of our lives. It shapes everything about us. So we're privileged tonight to open up God's word. And we're going to open up God's word to Colossians 3, 1 through 10, because this portion of scripture describes the believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are two words that I want you to note as I am reading Colossians 3, 1 through 10. I want you to note the word seek and the word set because it was repeated that we are to seek those things above and we are to set our minds on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. He is at the right hand of the Father. So now I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. And I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles, please. If then you were raised with Christ, 
seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put up all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and the opportunity we have tonight to open the word and see the truth that flows from it. Thank you, Father, for each woman who is here tonight and those who are listening online. And I trust, Father, that this message would touch hearts and lives for Jesus Christ. And I do pray, Father, that we would seek those things above, set our minds on things above, because that's where Christ is. So thank you now, Father, for the opportunity to share your word. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, it's interesting, the vast majority of uh, people go through life unaware that the way they view things is significantly at odds with the way that God views things. And here is the reason. The natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. Our minds are incapable of perceiving reality accurately from the day we're born. And because of our sin nature, that old man we just read about in Colossians, we end up believing all kinds of lies as we grow up. The human heart would rather hear lies. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 We have the capacity to see life, not as it appears to the natural man or the natural person, but as it appears to God. When we trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit came in and gave us God's truth to penetrate below the surface, to see what's really going on there, to see life as it really is. And we grow daily in our discernment to understand more and more about God and the mind of Christ. But we're not infallible. The old ways of thought are still there, and our faulty way of thinking doesn't go away between the wrong beliefs of the old self, the old person, and the biblical truth in the new self. So as a result, if we're not setting our mind on things above, if we're not seeking those things above, we can become unstable in all our ways. We can be up one minute and down the next. We can be happy one day, and the next day we can be down in the dumps and do not know what we're going to do next. One day we can have joy, the next day we have sadness. We're up and down and up and down, just like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. But as always, there's tremendous help and hope in the Lord, always available to us as believers. In fact, in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, 
It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So I don't think that a believer in Jesus Christ should look at their life by the ups and downs of life. But I think they should look at their life by the ins and outs of life is what I like to call it. In fact, Warren Wiersbe wrote, the believer evaluates his or her life not by ups and downs, but by ins and outs. For God works in us and we work out that beautiful life of Christ, that hidden life of Christ that we have within us. And that's the lovely part of the Christian life. God works in us the mind of Christ, and we work out his mind in our everyday lives, in our attitudes, and in our actions. So God began a good work in you when you accepted Christ as your Savior, and when you responded to the gospel, and he continues that good work with all the energy of Christ in your life. So, ladies, don't think of your life in terms of ups and downs, please. Think of your life in terms of ins and outs. Now, in this session that I've been giving you, these sessions on the power of our thoughts, um, have you noticed that your thought process needs daily maintenance? Have you been aware of that more so than we have before this? Do you ever notice how you talk to yourself about God throughout the day? We can so easily fall into a faulty view of thinking. And that is why scripture tells us in Romans 12, 2, to renew our mind, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because what we can do is we can create new neural pathways of thought that are consistent with the word of God when we renew our mind daily with God's truth and God's word. I mentioned in my first lesson that the human brain is malleable, which means it can be influenced anytime, anywhere, any place, at any age. So our thinking does not necessarily have to be set in its ways. Our mind can be renewed to God's truth and God's way of thinking. We can rewire our thoughts by thinking God's thoughts, creating new neural pathways of thought. The old pathway remains, but the new one gets stronger day by day. There are two verses that I've used as foundational verses for this series. And one of them is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. And it reads like this, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty, through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They have divine power to demolish strongholds, is according to this verse. Remember I said in my first lesson that a stronghold is a mental fortress built with bricks of thought. And we can become so comfortable with our mental strongholds, we don't even realize that they're there. But these walls can be pulled down. If we recognize the lies that we've held on to so long, lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about our life, uh, we can reject the lies and renew our mind with God's truth. This is the beauty of the Christian life. And I did some research, and science says that it takes 66 days to create a new thought pattern. Now, for some of us who are older, maybe it takes longer than that. (laughs) But on the average, it's 66 days to create a new thought pattern. So it tells me we don't get instant results. We can't push a delete button to remove all ways of thinking. However, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can change the way we think about anything. So with that in mind, two months from now, you could be thinking completely differently about what's going on in your life. There's always hope in the Lord, isn't there? Isn't that lovely to think about?
We also had another verse that I've used as a foundational verse of this series, and it's 2 Corinthians 10.5. And it says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And here's a key part. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And I've raised the question, what does that mean? Bringing every thought to obedience of Christ. How do I even do that, Father? Well, basically what this means is you don't have to allow your thoughts to run wild. (laughs) You have the power through the Holy Spirit to take your thoughts captive, just as a police officer has authority and the power to take a criminal captive, or at least he used to. (laughs) But either that thought is going to take you captive, or the Lord Jesus said, let me take that thought captive for you. Just trust me. Just rest in me, and I will do that. But either way, that thought will be bound. But God says, I have mighty weapons available for you to take those thoughts captive, those negative, harmful thoughts, those strongholds that are affecting you. He says, I have given you my word, and I've also given you the Holy Spirit, my very spirit within you. I've given you my love, and I've given you prayer, the opportunity to talk with me. And bring all your needs and requests to me. So these mental strongholds that we have formulated take time to demolish. God knows that. He's very patient with us. That's something for us to remember. We have a very patient God. In fact, that's one of his titles. He's the God of all patience. And he will help us to break down those mental strongholds. So don't get discouraged. Don't lose heart. Remember how we live the Christian life. We live the Christian life a day, no, let me take that back, a moment at a time. And thankfully, we do not demolish these mental strongholds alone. We simply cooperate with God who loves to rescue us. Now, with that review and background in mind, I'd like to go into the main part of tonight's message because I'm going to share with you Five destructive views of God that can be mental strongholds. Now, this will no means be an exhaustive list. Uh, Satan is the real deceiver, and his lies are endless. So if you do not have a handout, it probably would be a good idea for you to pick one up now, and you can follow along as I give this message. The Lord Jesus said to religious Jews... Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resource. For he is a liar and the father of it. That's John eight forty four. So basically what he's saying is we can get so used to Satan's lies and not even realize they are there. So tonight I'm going to expose five of them and I'm going to counter them with God's truth. So here they are. God is just mean and cruel. God doesn't love me. God is too restrictive. God is like my father. God has it out for me. The deadliest lies Satan wants us to believe are lies about God. He is always trying to get us to have a low view of God, believing things that are untrue about our God. And too many people suffer from lies they tell themselves about God. So when our perception of God has been damaged or compromised, 
Everything seems to fall into a place of confusion and turmoil. Nothing seems to make sense. However, the enemy, that old serpent Satan, is not the focus of this message. My focus, my emphasis is on the victorious Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the truth and who has victory over sin and death and rose again. Satan was defeated at the cross. And there's no lie that Satan can throw at you that God cannot defeat. You are on the winning side. Because as it says in 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord Jesus gave us a warning. And he said, the thief comes to steal and destroy. Who is the thief? In the verse of John 10, 10, it's none other than Satan himself. And he steals and destroys one thought at a time. But countering that, the Lord Jesus, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And I believe the Lord Jesus there is talking about our thought life, that our thought life can be abundant in Christ. Now, our Savior has defeated Satan's lies, but if we cannot identify those lies, then it is very likely we will continue to be defeated by them. They can become our own version of reality, our own version of the truth. So the only way to recognize a lie is to know God's truth. And remember what I said in the first lesson. We can only think one thought at a time, so if we are thinking God's truth, we are not thinking Satan's lies. So here is lie number one. God doesn't love me. And here's the truth. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are, 1 John 3.1. There is a deep lie in the heart of some women that they are not worthy of being loved for who they are. If they feel unloved, they are unloved. And we know we are supposed to believe that God loves us, yet there can be a disconnect between what we know and what we feel to be true. And there, ladies, lies the problem. We trust what we feel to be true rather than what we know to be true. So we look around at our life, (laughs) a difficult childhood, a difficult marriage, difficult relationships, a difficult life, a rejection from others, no suitor in sight, a recurring health problem, financial problems, loneliness, and our feelings can tell us, nobody loves me, not even God. And when I hear stories of women overcome with feelings such as these, my heart breaks because I know this is no small matter. And I do not judge you. You have all of my compassion. Life is hard, and and I know that. But this is not what God had in mind when he sent his son Jesus Christ to the earth to die on Calvary's cross. If you don't think God loves you, there are enormous implications and affects every area of your life. Our feelings have very little to do with reality. 
In many instances, feelings simply are not a reliable gauge of what is actually true. Feelings are not facts. We know that lovely verse of John 3.16. In fact, I call it everybody's verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when we share this verse with others, when we witness, we put people's names in this verse because Jesus Christ took names to the cross. He took your name to the cross. He took my name to the cross. He died for your sins. And yet when we look at 1 John 3.16, it's so interesting how this is countered. 1 John 3.16, a book that's written to believers, is a book that has to do with fellowship. And it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for me. That verse is written to believers. That's how I know I'm loved. That verse has so much meaning because it's more personal. Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That rings the bell. For our relationship with Jesus Christ is an affair of the heart. And God gives you his highest kind of love. It's called his agape love because you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you remember when I spoke out of Psalm 139? And I said to you that God knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He knew all about you in eternity past and he loved you back there. And he loved you there, and he loves you now. He loves you with an everlasting love before the foundation of the world. And he loves you so much that he has a specific and unique plan and purpose for your life. And when we see God's view of us and the depth of his love for us, it's so vast, it's beyond our understanding. It's so strong that he sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, for us so we might have eternal life? We say, Father, you proved your love for me at Calvary. A woman was dying, and a pastor was summoned, and he attempted to comfort her, but to no avail. I have ruined my life and every life around me, she said. How can God love me? The pastor saw a framed picture of a pretty girl on a dresser. Who is this? he asked, and the woman brightened. She's my daughter, the one beautiful thing in my life. And would you help her? If she were in trouble or made a mistake, would you forgive her? Would you still love her? Of course I would. I would do anything for her. Why do you ask such a question? Because I want you to know that God has a picture of you on his dresser. He loves you. To God, you are beautiful in his sight because he sees you. In Christ. Regardless of your looks, your abilities, your personality, your background, you are inherently worthy of the highest kind of love, God's love. And Christ gave his life for us as messy and as immoral as we were. God did not wait to love us until we had cleaned up our acts. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. And your very sinfulness and unworthiness, instead of a reason why he should not love you, is your chiefest claim to love you. Now imagine a love that could not 
be greater or lessened, deepened or weakened. It's not just merely a thought, ladies. This is the truth. God loves you as he does his own dear son. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So, God loves you. Whether you feel loved, regardless of what you have done, where you have come from, God loves you with an infinite, tender love. He loves you because that's who he is. He is love. And love isn't something God decided to do once he created Adam and Eve. It's his very core. It's his nature, his essence. Now, if you suffer from the fact that you doubt sometimes whether God loves you, here's another thought. Study the Lord Jesus Christ. Get to know him for who he really is because Jesus Christ reveals the heart of God to us. In fact, that's what the Lord Jesus said. He said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I couldn't think of anybody better to learn from, could you, than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the kindest person who has ever lived. And God is the kindest God. The love of God, the heart of God, is kinder than you can imagine. The Lord Jesus Christ was so kindly disposed that he welcomed little children to come to him. He forgave a harlot on the street. He healed lepers. There is nothing in your life that will turn you away from God. God is never disgusted with you, no matter how sinful, how impure, or odd you may be. He never turns away from you because God loves you. Now, are you familiar with that much-loved writer, Hannah Whitehall Smith? In fact, some of you can say yes to that. I know that our book club is right now reading the book, The God of All Comfort, written by Hannah Whitehall Smith. She also wrote a book, The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. And as you read those books, you think, wow, she must have had quite the life. But you probably didn't know she did have quite the life. And when you hear about her life, you think, she hung on to the love of God in her life because she had so many hard things going on in her life. Let me just share a few of those with you. She was married to a preacher who proved to be spiritually and emotionally unstable and who was repeatedly unfaithful to her. Two of her five children died of scarlet fever. One daughter abandoned her husband and ran off with an artist. Another daughter married an outspoken atheist. Hannah herself suffered from painful arthritis. And with all of this in mind, she wrote these two lovely books and others as well, The God of All Comfort and The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. So here are two books for you women to read. If you haven't done that, this one is The God of All Comfort, and here you see The Christian's Secret to a Happy Life. And I have some advice for you. Always read books that will make you look good if you die in the middle of one of them. So there you go. Here's my piece of advice. Um, When I was conducting research on Hannah Whitehall-Smith, I discovered to my amazement that she befriended my great, great, great aunt. Yes, Susan B. Anthony. Yes, that's my great, great, great aunt, uh, leader in women's suffrage. And I thought only God could write this story. I hope that you don't see any family resemblance (laughs) 
to Susan B. Anthony. She has a rather stern look there. But yes, indeed, she is in my lineage. And in spite of all of these trials, Hannah had, she wrote about God's love for her. And this is what she wrote, and it's in your handout. Put together all the tenderest love you know of, the deepest you have ever felt, and the strongest that has ever been poured out upon you, and heap it upon all the love of all the loving human hearts in the world, and then multiply it by infinity. And you will begin, perhaps, to have some faint glimpse of what the love of God is. God's steadfast love for you, dear friends, motivates all that he does in your life. Do not doubt his love for you. Trust in your heavenly Father who loves you. His love is infinite. And to fully grasp God's love for you, grow in your understanding of God. Lie number two. God is just mean and cruel. And here's a truth and a warning. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 It's tragic when we view God as mean-spirited. And we might ask, why would God keep this one thing from me that I've always wanted? It seems like such a good thing. Why has God allowed so much pain in my life? Lies about God damage our relationship with him when we see him as mean, punitive, spiteful, out to get us. And Satan's lies also make it harder to cope with life with the strong emotions that flood us when life goes badly. We begin to see life through our own filter of hurt. And if we're not thinking God's truth, we may even doubt God's goodness for us. But there's no limit to God's goodness, according to Scripture. God is as good to one person as he is to another. Now, I have not been through some of the sorrows some of you have been through. And I acknowledge that. But I want to be helpful With the words that I speak, I want to give you words of hope, words of encouragement, not condemnation, not judgment. I don't want to appear critical. I'm sharing with you the love of God. For Christ is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, it says in Scripture, and I desire to have the same attitude. But I'll be honest with you. Here's the truth of the matter. Satan is a mean and cruel one. He is to be blamed for all of the sin and sickness and sorrow in the world. And that's why Satan tries to attack your faith in Jesus Christ and in his word. To get you to look around and set your affections on things below and not on things above. To look at all the troubles and the turmoil around you. To lose your confidence in God. Satan wants you to have a doubtful mind. He wants you to have a deceived mind. He wants you to have a discouraged mind. Because when you have that kind of mind, then you, can't, you don't set your mind on things above. You're setting your mind on all of the mess around you. You have probably heard the expression that hurting people hurt people. Have you heard that? 
And there's a truth to that because we can transfer our hurts, our anger, our pain, our struggles on someone else. Just dump it on them. Take it out on them. But we can not only transfer our hurts onto other people, we have a tendency of transferring our hurts onto God. Seeing him as just another person we cannot trust. And when we look at God as being cruel and mean, it changes our whole demeanor, it changes our whole focus of life, and we become very negative. We get a very negative mindset. Everything is wrong. Not just one thing is wrong. Everything is wrong. We can't say anything right about anything or anybody, whether it's our husband, our children, our friends, our job, our church, our car, our house, you name it. It's all negative. It's impossible to have the mind of Christ when we have that attitude. And we reflect whatever attitude we carry. You know, I've shared that expression that people say, I can read you like a book. (laughs) Well, there's truth to that. Because everyone we meet is helped or hindered by what we are radiating. So with that in mind, I want us to take inventory of any hurtful things you've transferred onto God over the years and replace them with the truth of his word. See him for who he is rather than the things that have been done to you. And imagine what your life would be like if you could live in that freedom of the truth of his word rather than the false things you believed about God. How would that impact your life? How would that affect your relationship with him? How would that affect your relationship with others? You know, sometimes we have the false notion that we can control God. How's that worked out for you? We think if we beg and plead, then God maybe will give in and he's obligated to deliver the goods for us. He will give us that one desire of our heart. God, I want you to change your plans in my life and I want you to change them now. Well, if you think that God must always be giving you good things in order for him to be good, there will come a time when you will believe God is mean and cruel. And that lie has a smell of smoke all over it. Because that's exactly the way Satan defeated Eve. Putting in her mind that God is holding out on you, Eve. Now, the older I get, the more I'm amazed how God runs so few things by me and the things he does in my life. God cannot be talked into doing things simply because I want it done. He will not in any way change his character or his attributes. I cannot convince God to do something because I want him to do it. I'm in no position to negotiate with God in my terms. But this is where trust comes in. I have to trust, I must trust, that he is working all things together for good in my life, even though I cannot figure it out. There is nothing that delights God more than when I trust him when nothing makes sense in my life. So ladies, would you bring your mind back to the truth? You have the God of truth. He is your father. We saw last time we met, he is your papa. That's a God you need not turn away from. He's a God who is rich in mercy, forgiveness, love, grace, quick to forgive, and he's for you. What do you need in your trial today? I say you need a friend. You need a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that friend is Jesus Christ. And look at the Lord Jesus Christ from every direction. He's always the same, forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And you'll never run into any meanness in the Lord Jesus Christ or resentment or ill will. He never fluctuates in his feelings as we do. But another thing that you need in your life is you need a human friend or two. And I trust the Lord has sent you one to love on you, to love on you in Jesus Christ. And you thank the Lord for such a friend as that, such a devoted and kind friend. So God has no ill will toward you. That's not in the character of God at all. He's not revolted by your wretchedness. He has no regrets about creating you. You need not worry that God behind your back will mistreat you. You never need to fear that God will catch you when your back is turned and do something malicious. For there's no malice in the heart of God. Only love. Only goodness. That is all. Therefore, you need not see him as cruel. So choose to collapse in his love for you. Truly, we may not understand all that God is doing in our life. And God is far too great for us to plumb the depths of his decisions for us. But a God who is little enough to be explained is not big enough to be worshipped. Lie number three. God is like my father. And here's the truth. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4.18. We grew up in a world where love must be earned. And the lie that God's love must be earned is one of the lowest views of God we can have. We have a God whose love has no starting place. It cannot be measured. Who expressed the fullness of his love by sending a son who laid down his life for us. I spent my early years raised by parents who sacrificially looked out for my two brothers and me. And they did the best job they could to raise us properly. And I'm very thankful for them and I love my parents deeply. My mother demonstrated unconditional love throughout my life. They have both passed away. My father was a perfectionist. He had a very strong personality, and he placed a great deal of emphasis on right behavior and right appearance. So from my childhood, I desired to please Dad. But I often felt like a disappointment to him, even as an adult. I didn't graduate as valedictorian as he had hoped, I did not attend the University of Minnesota, which was his alma mater. Instead, I attended Winona State University. And I did not major in the sciences, as he had, but in English and speech communication. And I remember the day when I came to my father and made the decision not to major in the sciences, and I told him, Father, I love words more than numbers. And I remember seeing his face, and it just dropped. For love was conditional with my father, and that brought undue condemnation whenever I thought I had disappointed him. So then I came to believe that God's acceptance is human, and I have to jump through hoops to earn it. And then God dispelled that lie with his truth. While a junior at Winona State University, my roommate shared the gospel with me. And she said, Carol, by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Salvation was designed for people who have made mistakes, who have failed, who have let people down. Your worth before God has nothing to do with performance. Salvation is offered by God with unconditional forgiveness and love and grace. We can never be justified or be made right in God's sight on the basis of anything we could do or on the basis we could perfectly fulfill the Old Testament law, which in essence would make us perfect people, and we all fail at that. So God provided another way for us to be declared righteous, and that is through the death and resurrection of the only one and truly righteous one who walked the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only through the redemption provided in Christ that sinners can be forgiven and received into God's family. And when I heard that message, I grabbed a hold of it. And I thought, I am going to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior and to let go of that life of trying to always work, work, work to be accepted, whether it was by my Father or the Heavenly Father. And as a result of my redemption in Christ, not only was I saved, but everything that related to me and my life, I said, was going to be redeemed. It's all going to work out eventually. And this was very important for me to see. Because Dad's disappointment in me, and sometimes disgust, heightened after my salvation. So God began to work in my life the moment I accepted Christ as my Savior. And I'm so pleased to say he continues to work in my life through the energy and the power of Christ. And I live my life, but it's not my life. It's his life. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And an understanding of my frailty is a basis for my dynamic relationship for Jesus Christ. Because I don't know about you ladies, but I need Jesus Christ. I need him every single day, every moment of every single day. And it was so wonderful for me to see. And it took me time to get a hold of all this. God doesn't love me because I seek to please him, not because I speak at women's Bible studies. He loves me because he is love. His love is not based on anything I have ever done or ever could do for him. There is nothing I can do to make God love me more or make him love me less. I don't deserve his love. I haven't earned it. But he loves me in Christ. And it's the love of Christ that motivates me every single day. Yes, my love for him, but even more so, his love for me. When we begin to see God clearly, we also begin to see how to live differently. And a large part of being a spiritually healthy person is found in seeing ourselves the way God sees us. And one of the things that has helped me to see how God sees me is that I'm accepted in the beloved. Isn't that a lovely thought in Ephesians 1, 6? To the praise of the glory of his grace, when he has made us accepted in the beloved. I like to be accepted. I always have liked to be accepted. Even as a youngster, don't you want to be accepted? Of course you do. Of course. No matter where we are, we like to be accepted. We like to be well thought of. And just the idea that I am accepted In Christ, I am accepted in the beloved. We are all ladies as believers in Christ, part of the beloved. I couldn't think of a better title for us to own than that. And God has also been so kind to me throughout the years because he's shown himself, himself to me through his word. And you've heard me say this, but I love my daily appointment with God. 
where I spend time with God in his word and in prayer, getting to know him better. There is something about the word of God at work in your mind, friends. It forms you, it convicts you, it challenges you, it encourages you. And you may not realize that this process is going on, but the transformation is going on just the same. And if there's anything I can leave with you through these women's Bible studies, it's this encouragement. Spend time with the Lord. Just your own time. Just carve out whatever it can be, morning, noon, night, I don't care. Find some quiet time alone with the Lord. And it's amazing how he speaks to you through his word and through that still small voice as you pray to him and you look to him and he comforts you and he settles you and he gives you that passion and the desire to keep on keeping on even when it's hard to keep on keeping on. So as that divine illumination takes place under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you begin to see God for who he really is, your loving Heavenly Father with no strings attached. Here's line number four. God's ways are too restrictive. Here's the truth. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. That's John eight thirty six. We are all, I believe, passionate lovers of liberty. We seek room. We like our own space. We like our own way of doing things, and that's just fine. But there are those who have an inclination that the Christian life is a way into narrowness that cramps their style. But nothing could be further from the truth. It is Satan's lie. But Satan would never have this lie believed if so many religions hadn't taught a system of don'ts and of outward observance. Now, some people think God is restrictive based upon their religious background or experiences. They live with fear that I must adhere to a system of rules and expectations to be accepted by God. And it's to intensely religious people that the Lord Jesus Christ preached these words in John 8.36. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He came to preach deliverance to the captive of rituals, no less to the captives of sin. And the gospel is a call out of restriction. It's a call out to the wise horizon of possibilities God has for us. And I love that about the Christian life. We all have these wonderful opportunities and possibilities that God has for us. We have the freedom to do that. And your opportunities and possibilities are different than mine. But they're there nonetheless. In fact, the first message that the Lord Jesus Christ preached in the synagogue was this message. He said, I came to set the captive free. But no one does anything well in fear. Whether you're taking a final exam, you're standing at a tee ready to hit the golf ball, or you're speaking in public, which is the number one fear, you will not function well in fear. So salvation came and begins with a complete removal of fear. The believer is assured that Christ is given to eternal life and that nothing is able to pluck her out of God's omnipotent hand, which holds her forever. So God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us his power, love, and a sound mind, which means a controlled mind. That is available to us through Christ. 
So then Christ says in Galatians 5, 1, excuse me, not Christ, but Paul says in Galatians 5, 1, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has set us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. To be free in Christ and not to know it is tragic. You are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, your heir of God's, and without that interior work by the Holy Spirit, no external work can make you free. Now, some believers say, you know, the Christian life is just plain dull and boring. That's what I think. I don't think you can have any fun in the Christian life. It's my personal opinion. So they look for fun in all the wrong places, thinking that leads to liberty. It's interesting because Satan caused Eve to focus on the one limitation God had placed on her. Has God indeed said you can't eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden? He cast a bad reflection on God that caused Eve to question God and who he was and if he really had her best interests in mind. So the implication to Eve was, God is holding out on you. There's a whole lot more fun out there, Eve. If he cared about you, he would not have denied you something you really wanted. Oh, that enemy. He wants to keep us in bondage, but God wants us to walk in freedom. But Christian freedom is not anarchy. It's not the riot of our will versus God's will. Some people have the idea that their liberty and crisis earn them the right to do as they please. And this idea is a great lie as well. God has given us many privileges, but he never gives us the privilege to sin. In fact, it says in Romans 6, 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God doesn't ignore our disobedience. The truth is that sin is dangerous, it's deadly, it's destructive. If we play with fire, we will get burned. God will not turn a blind eye to the immoral things that we do. But here is the bright light of God's love and grace where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We stand in oceans of grace. God knows our thoughts and actions, yet loves us with every fiber of his being. We are under his protective umbrella of grace, and God loves us too much not to chasten us when we intentionally disobey him and his word. He cares for our spiritual well-being, but we are not under God's wrath, but under his love. Whether in blessing or chastening, the Lord's purpose is to reveal himself to us in his love and grace. So when you see him for who he is, his mercy and his kindness, you're drawn to him. In fact, the verse says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that, dear ladies, is where true freedom is found. And here's lie number five. God has it out for me. Here's the truth. What then shall we say in view of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 What painful things in your life do you feel God uses against you? You know, when trials come into our life of one sort or another, uh, it could be like physical pain, loss uh, of a job, loss of reputation, loss of health, loss of people. We're perplexed, and we might ask the question, what have I done to deserve this? 
Why are you punishing me, God? Why me? Is there anyone here who has not asked the question, why, at one time or another? Well, probably not. Because all of us have tried from time to time to probe God's thoughts, haven't we? Tell me what's going on, Father, so I can make sense of this. You want to post a sign that says, there will be no more crises next week. My schedule is already full. But my heart goes out to you, dear friend, because anybody who makes the statement, God has it out for me, I know that person is hurting deeply and attempting to find answers to very difficult questions. And I know that some of you are going through times of suffering and darkness and unanswered questions, and you have my great compassion and prayers on your behalf. Because trials can change our understanding of who God is. We can think we understand God, but then when things begin to unravel in our life, God can be more mysterious than ever. And it leads us to say something like this, perhaps. If I had been bad, I deserve this. But, Father, I have been following your word. I love you. And everything in my life has fallen apart. Why? When we go through struggles, Satan will try to convince you that God has it out for you. Or other believers have it out for you. Or that you're being punished for some unknown reason and you deserve it. Lies. All lies. Many questions can come into our mind when bad things happen, but the thought that God has it out for us remains the loudest. It's a thought rooted in the lie that God hates me. Or other Christians hate me. You know, we can rehearse a conversation we've had over and over and over again when that conversation itself is long over, took place many, many years ago. Yeah, we would still want to go over that in our minds until our stomachs are full of the black bile of bitterness. We can hoard bitter thoughts like they're some kind of treasure. Now, there's probably no book in the Bible that will expand your knowledge of God better than the book of Job. And when you read the book, you will see everything that happens to God is in God's, everything that happens to Job is in God's hand. And God prescribed the limits of Job's sufferings, and God gave permission for Satan to implement it. So Satan operates only under the limits and parameters that God sets. But behind Job's trial, as we read the story, is God's purpose, plan, and providence for Job. The Apostle Paul knew that. Job believed that. And the entire Bible teaches this. Here God sent trials to this most righteous man, Job. And that appears to be the very reason. God appointed him these very difficult trials. He tests the faith of the righteous. And perhaps you're one of them. You have so much in common with Job that you could be called Jobella. But do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. Now it's interesting because Job came to this conclusion at the end of the book. He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, Job 42.5. That is exactly where God was taking Job. 
I've heard all about you, Father, but I hadn't made it personal. I didn't see the great God that I have, and now I see you with the eye of faith. And without those trials that Job went through, he would have never been brought to this place. And it's interesting because the apostle Peter echoes that statement. He says, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So Peter is saying, we do not understand suffering with a shallow viewpoint of God's intentions. If we were to judge it that way, we would look at Jesus Christ on the cross and see all the evil that was unleashed on him. Evil men crucified him. We see all the hatred and anger and his sufferings would be unexplained. And yet we know, as believers of Jesus Christ, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So God has a plan bigger for us than sometimes we can see. A pastor shared the time when he was deeply discouraged. He was so full of despair that he went to the beach and he wrote in the sand all the things he had against God. He prayed about all the ugly things written there and asked God just to take them away. And in the midst of his prayer, he felt what he described was a tremendous presence. He opened his eyes in wonder and saw that the tide had come in and washed it all away. Some of you may be bitter against God, and God understands that. For those of you who haven't talked to God for a while because you're angry at him, talk to him. He loves you. He can handle it. He knows what's on your mind. And God will pour grace into your soul to slowly wash away your bitterness if you let him. And you'll begin to see a hint of God's purposes, even though the sky is dark and God's ways a mystery. And someday we will see Christ with resurrected eyes. And everything will be plain and clear and we'll understand it all. And we'll see, Father, you do all things well. But until that time, there's a lot of mystery. And God wants us to be comfortable with that. And we have to settle on not knowing all of God's hidden purposes, for God's ways are past finding out. Isn't that the truth? Yes, sometimes God hides himself in the dark, but never far away from us. So if you are discouraged tonight, don't forget about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. In one sense, the whole armor of God is a picture of Jesus Christ. Our armor is made of truth. Jesus Christ has given us his righteousness. We have the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith. We have the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you've heard me emphasize in these messages, take, put on the helmet of salvation by faith. We cannot fight the battle in our own power. The helmet refers to the mind controlled by God. So mentally, every day, by your renewing of your mind, put on that helmet of salvation because it protects your mind from harmful thoughts of defeat. Some believers don't have victory in their lives because they're not thinking victory. So think victor, not 
victim. When a soldier loses hope, he's lost the battle. And he looks around and he says, you know what? We can't possibly win. Because defeat is on the inside, not on the outside. So the soldier takes off his helmet. He can't even lift his head high. He drops his head in discouragement and defeat. But our great God lifts our head heavenward so that we, in turn, can see the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him with the eye of faith seated at the right hand of the Father, and that gives us hope because we know it will be worth it all when we see Christ. Many years ago, a dear woman in our church suffered greatly, and she is now with the Lord. Her husband died in a house fire. She lost all of her earthly possessions, and she was badly burned. I think many of you know of whom I speak, Mrs. Donna Rackey. A godly woman who loved the Lord, she loved her family, and she loved her church family. And when her children entered the hospital room after the traumatic event, she said, God does all things well. She knew God had a purpose in it all. She didn't know what it was. She just trusted him because she trusted in a God she did know. So can we. God loves to be trusted. That's what makes him happy. That's what brings him such delight and joy is when we trust him for us to believe He is on our side even when it appears he is doing things contrary to his love. What joy that brings our God. So back to Colossians 3, where we are encouraged to set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For the things above is where our victory lies, for we always triumph in Christ, ladies, And we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. That is a beautiful position. And not just in eternity, but today. And I love that thought because when I say when I'm seated in the heavenlies in Christ, positionally, I'm looking down on my problems. I'm looking down on them and saying, okay, there they are. Yep, there's all that mess down there. There's all the stuff I'm dealing with. There's all the people. There's all this, the junk that's going on. But I'm looking at it from a different perspective. When I have my mind set on things above, that's the viewpoint. That's the position of faith, is looking down from that exalted position. Now, it's interesting. When the nation of Israel came to the border of the promised land, they refused to enter. The whole generation, starting with 20-year-olds, died in the wilderness because of one thought. And here's the thought. We can't trust God to fight our battles. So only two entered Canaan, Joshua and Caleb, and they believed God. And they said, we can go in and conquer the land. How were Caleb and Joshua able to enter? Because already their hearts and minds were in Canaan. They had armed themselves with the right mind. Our feet must be on earth, ladies, but our minds must be in heaven. Now, you could leave here tonight 
and say, well, that was a nice message. Thank you so much, Carol. And then you can go on your way. And then as you go on your way, you say to yourself, well, you know what? I think I'll just keep thinking and feeling and acting the way I have my whole life. It's interesting. We can live without air for a few minutes, without water for a week, without food for six weeks, and without a new thought for a lifetime. Or we can take God up on his offer to transform our thinking. We can co-labor with him to turn our thoughts to his truth because truth matters. Remember, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. We rarely get to choose our circumstances, but we have a choice about what we think of God. And if we would only contemplate the glory and majesty of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how that thought would transform our lives and that wonderful connection we have with him. May we sing like the hymn of old, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Gracious Heavenly Father, I stand amazed at your great love for us. I stand amazed, Father, that in that love you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross to die for us, to take upon our sins, and then, Father, be buried and resurrected and give us that eternal life in Christ. And, Father, it's just exciting, really, to think about our Christian life because you provided it all for us, and you take care of us, Father, in your loving way. And, Father, you know we go through hard things. You understand that, and that's why you're there for us. You're a very present help in time of trouble. I pray, Father, for each woman here today and those who may be listening. You know their needs, Father, and you are anxious and delighted to meet their needs. I pray, Father, and thank you that as the word goes out, that it would bring comfort to hearts as we rest in you. So I pray now, Father, for our time of fellowship to follow, thanking you and praising you. In Jesus' name, amen.